Hi, Collabers. I'm Ben Leroy. And I'm Jason Buckholz. And you're listening to Collabracast. How you doing, Jay? I'm all right. I'm hot. It's hot out here. We're in the middle of a big old heat wave. We're looking at, uh, well, not a, right in my neighborhood, but uh, not far from here. We're triple digits plus. It's uh, it's it's challenging. And this is a, an area where, oh, at least where I live, it's not a lot of people have air conditioning here because it's just not a thing that we typically need. So uh, I spent much of the day yesterday just floating on the bay in my kayak, just throwing water over myself. Yikes. And that worked, but 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 uh, I've got some, I got a few other things to do today, so I'm not going to quite have that luxury. Do you invest in fans if you don't have air conditioning? Yep. I've got a couple of ceiling fans here in my home, so that's that's nice, not that helped me get some sleep last night but um yeah i don't i think i'm gonna need to go buy some 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 whatever they're called freestanding fans box fans yeah i saw footage of lake Merritt, and that there was a big fish die off because of an algae bloom too i don't know if that's at all related to to heat but it's just one of those I think the heat, yeah, I think the heat exacerbates it, definitely. I heard on the news yesterday that they're anticipating that today there will be will be the highest demand ever on the California power grid. So I'm I'm trying to keep things charged up. It's a good thing that we're recording this uh, early in the morning because <laughs> who knows where uh, how things are going to stand by by the afternoon today. But it's not, I mean, here, it's not supposed to, in the town where I live, it's not supposed to get over 95 or so today. I heard on NPR this morning, it was a story about the heat in Montana in these places where it's over 100 degrees and there's no air conditioning and people are are giving babies constant cold baths to keep them and, and then taking them to the ER because they're, it's just, it's not... There are, you know, we're watching it happen. There are are places that in our lifetimes have gone from being, uh, are, are becoming not fit for human habitation, really, or at least I was, and this, this came as a surprise to me. This might not be a surprise to a lot of people, but I was talking to my friend who lives in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and, and she mentioned to me what her power bill is every month for, the air conditioning and and so on and i it's about eight times what i pay here oh wow so it was it was it was astonishing to me um and she said that that was actually lower than when she lived in new york and had all the, the heating that she needed to do in the winter so i can't complain i'm i'm in an area that is quite temperate uh sitting here on the edge of the bay um doesn't get too hot doesn't get too cold and there are all big parts of the country where it's it's difficult and or very expensive to keep a a temperature i mean you you get it coming through there you're in a, yeah. a sweatshirt this morning though i see so what's happening <laughs> yeah it's uh it's pleasant it's in the 60s i think right now 
it's the same trend that I was talking about last week. I can definitely tell that fall is coming. Later this week, I'm headed to the Rocky Mountains where my anticipation is that it'll be cool, but I do know that there is a heat wave moving east across the country, so I don't know. I might get I might also get shocked by hot temperatures. In Wisconsin, we have to be prepared to heat when it gets to negative 40 with the wind chill and just miserable. And then we have definitely experienced much warmer temperatures in my guess of of the last few years, the last decade maybe, than what I remember in my youth. I remember as a kid when someone would say it was in the 80s that I thought that that was really, really warm. And I don't know. It could be that you're seven years old. Like, how do you put anything in context at that point? But it seemed to me that when I think back, I think about the 80s then, and I'm like, oh, it's hot. And now we have seen 100 degrees multiple times, and it's it feels like it's changing. It also feels again, might be nostalgia, might just be the memory of children, but it seems like it snowed a lot more when I was younger. I say that knowing that a few years ago, we set a record and had over 100 inches of snow one winter, so it still clearly snows, but we also have had getting it all the way into like January before it really snows, and that, I think I recall snow on Halloween when I was growing up, so I don't know. My memory is terrible, but the weather is changing. So I am probably a very unreliable narrator when it comes to these matters. I, you know, this doesn't bring any more science into it, but I, my memories corroborate yours. There is in Western Sonoma County where I grew up, there is a, uh, a river Valley. Uh, the river is called the Russian river. And when I was a kid, it would flood pretty regularly. And the news was all about the river flooding and people would get displaced. And now that area that it's the problem is fires. So it's, it's definitely gone from too much water to not enough water in, in, you know, my lifetime in the last 30, 40 years. Not to put too much of a existential dread side route on this episode of the podcast but i do think about what we talk about the mission of collaboris being with helping people tell and document their stories how important it is that we record the stories of people and how we record the histories so that future generations can look back and have first person reportage about how things used to be so that it's it's a critical part of knowing humanity's evolution and i think about how when survival becomes the only consideration that people really have like keeping having to give babies cold baths before taking them to the er because of the extremes that people are experiencing 
it becomes very easy when survival is the only thing at hand to not tell story, to forget to tell story, to not accurately and fully document story. And so it is very important that we that we do this. And I have long flights of fancy where I just think about like, what is the state of the universe in 5,000 years, in 10,000 years? What record can we leave behind and how do we do it in a way that is more likely to survive shifting landscapes of people and places and societies? It's not all just about writing fast moving novels with big explosions. Like there's, there's a whole underlying thing that needs to be done. True. There was, I heard another snippet yesterday about the, uh, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but I think it was a Voyager with, with the, with the record on it that's carrying the, yeah. the gold record into outer space with, uh, so there are, it, it is, it is that spirit but to uh, the message to our future selves, our future generations. Yeah. Whoever's left, whatever's happening in a thousand years, a couple thousand years. I think I only became aware of that. And yeah, it was Voyager. Um, I think I only became aware of that in the last few years. Certainly it has probably been talked about when I've been in a room somewhere, but these are the kinds of things that I have found a more personal interest in the, the older I get. And let's see, yeah, for music, we've got Bach, we've got Senegalese percussionist, Zaire, Australia, Mexico, Johnny B. Good, Chuck Berry is there, New Guinea, Japan, more Bach, Mozart, Peru, Louis Armstrong. And this, you know, this doesn't have some of my favorite albums on it. So I <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if there'll ever be a day where we can all curate what it is we launch into space, hoping that somebody somebody finds it's got images, it's got mathematical formulas on it, it's got all kinds of just absolutely fascinating stuff. Yeah, storage technology is different now. So the the amount of data that we could launch into space now would be quite different. We're going to be shotgunning thumb drives all into the cosmos. <laughs> It'd be like the t-shirt cannon of the sporting event, except it's all going to be thumb drives. Whatever your new favorite band is, just get those MP3s on a thumb drive and just launch it. Uh, we could just make a mess of the universe, but who oh, yeah. knows? Yeah, you know, it can... might just be that the universe is one big county fair and we're just <laughs> doing the promo work for seven Mary three and Maroon five to get a gig in Uranus or something. I don't know. <laughs> that are just littering, just, just all this, just adding to the space junk that we've already just Total got floating around. Yeah. Total disregard. Well, uh, I wanted to quickly just touch on something that's going on in the in the publishing industry and then move on to the the more the more focused part of the episode. I know that people have been 
watching or paying attention to the current court battle, court discussion of one large publisher acquiring another large publisher and some of the revelations that have come out during testimony have been really interesting, have peeled back the curtain on a lot of the operational secrecy that is the publishing industry. And I am watching it with a certain curiosity and maybe some future episode will dig down a little bit more into like what's being talked about and what it means and what the implications are. And I see certain people getting offended about certain phrases, discussions, and I would move that some of them aren't worth getting frustrated about, for instance, one of the things that came out was that big publishers see independent publishers as the minor leagues. And a lot of people got offended and were like, well, we put out books that are just as good, which is, yeah, true. But in my experience, I found validation. And maybe this speaks more to my own sort of psychological makeup, but I found validation of publishing. I found validation publishing authors' debuts and then seeing them acquired by larger houses in the future for their next book. And that would be part of that minor league system. They tested in a in Pawtucket and then they went to Boston. And I'm okay with that like that that wasn't an insult to me because I recognize that just like the Madison Mallards here in town who play minor league baseball and aren't affiliated with any particular organization I realize that you can still have a lot of pride in what you're doing and that you are training people you are separating the wheat from the chaff and in some ways to see what might work on a bigger stage that's okay. I liked seeing authors get paid. I liked knowing that we had done a good enough job that an author built up a sales record and a critical review record that was noteworthy enough that large publishers were like, oh, okay, this clearly is working. Let's, let's take a chance on this. I don't look at that as a bad thing. So I see reflexive, how dare you call us minor league and I, I guess I'd be prepared to have a larger conversation about that. But the other thing that I saw people talking about that I just wanted to very quickly say is that there was some statistic that was cited about 99.9999% of all books published sell fewer than 12 copies. And that statistic is a little bit off, but it speaks to a, a larger thing. And people like really flipped out on that. And I need to better understand that quote in context. But I also want to remind people that the official sales records in the publishing industry, the group agreed upon official sales records. So not the ones that the actual publishers are privy to, but the ones that are sort of more available for general human perusal can be found on BookScan, which is a paid service run by Nielsen 
that takes into account books sold at a variety of places, the chains such as they are, and independent bookstores, doesn't take into account library sales, doesn't take into account back of the room sales, doesn't take into account many independent bookstores. I lose track of what is included and what isn't included. I lose track of what the actual map is, but it's something along the lines of using book scan sales numbers can represent 40 to 70% of actual sales. It's just, it is an imprecise, non-perfect tool to figure out book sales. And it's very possible for a book to have bad numbers on BookScan that have actually done well. It's just that their sales have gone to places that aren't represented by the people reporting on BookScan. So yes, there are details and facts and parts of the story that are coming out through all of this process that are surprising, that are eye-opening. Some of them I think I've probably come just acclimated to because I've been around it for 20 plus years. But uh, maybe when all of this is wrapped up, we can do an episode that at least in part covers what some of the major findings and uh, we can assess it. We can kind of do a postmortem on it. So that's that. What are we talking about today, Mr. Buckholz? Well, you and I have had a number of conversations about our feelings in regards to folks that we see trying to sell services to authors who are in a hurry, who are kind of marketing <clears throat> marketing to a, a subset of aspiring authors who, who seem to think that an important goal should be to write your novel as fast as you can. And I remain perplexed about that. I know you do. And so we wanted to just say, why? That's perplexing. There's no reason to do that. And in fact, there's every reason, or if there is a reason to do it, it is, it is not one that is conducive to putting good books into the world. Yeah. And to further that, I would say that if speed is your biggest priority, how fast can I write this? You need to set your goals accordingly. The assumption being that the faster you write a book, my guess would be the less thorough it is and therefore if you're competing with other authors who are querying agents who are querying publishers if your goal is to do things the traditional way of getting an agent getting a publisher then speed is not a factor that they're taking into consideration at all they're taking into consideration how well written is this book and how marketable is this book if your goal is that you're self-publishing and that you are trying to create a steady stream of content, which is, I know, a model that some people use, it's just one I'm not familiar with, then speed might be more of a consideration. But I would say, like, what is your return 
on that. If you're if you're making twenty thousand dollars a month by just generating content and you've got a built-in audience that is just consuming and waiting for the next thing, then I guess speed is probably a factor. But I don't know how many people are actually doing that and doing that in a way that is financially successful and viable by the standards that they create. And I do worry that if your goal is to write fast, that if you don't establish an audience, if you don't have a loyal readership early on, you'll never get one. Because if you're sacrificing quality for speed, how are you going to get their trust for book two when they've given up on book one? Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you, it takes time to do things well. And if, if, if you're going to build a house, you're not going to say to somebody, Hey, I, I built this house and I built it in a week. You're going to love it. Just move in and make yourself comfortable. And it's just, yeah, don't worry about what it looks like, but I built it really fast. That's the main thing that you need to know. It's like, no, no, it doesn't, that's not, when you when we're writing query letters nowhere in there does it say how long it took you like did nobody it doesn't the the thing that matters is the quality um again you know you mentioned th that there there may be a small number of authors who are making something of a living by just simply putting out title after title after title and okay go go ahead and and go for that but if you are if your goal is to write something that is really going to move somebody if you're going to if you're planning if if your goal is to share stories that really communicate that really to create characters to create situations to create stories to convey emotional realities to to kind of give shape to the shapeless things that, that we struggle to communicate to one another. That's not something that you can do quickly. Um, if you, if you look at the books that have really made an impact on, on the language, on people, they, they are. And of course people will bring up on the road, which Jack Kerouac famously typed out in three weeks, but, the part of that story that isn't very broadly shared is that he spent years writing filling journals. He he had a lot of he did a lot of living. He did a lot of traveling. The book is very much based on him and his life and the things that he lived and did, which he filled journals with um, during that whole time. And he did that for two, three years, filled journals. So by the time he actually sat down to type out that famous scroll it was yes it was a a, a coffee fueled major writing bender the rumors about him being completely drug fueled are unfounded and not true it was it was it was there was a lot of caffeine involved um and it was yeah it was it was a, a mad typing dash but it was not, he was not creating things from whole cloth. He wasn't thinking through situations and characters and trying things and revising things. That was a revision. He had already done a lot of that work in his journals and had a, a very clear idea in his head of what he wanted to do with that by the time he sat down. 
So he was able to just sit down and, and crank it out. And then after that, it got revised. That that was one draft. And then it was it was the 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 first edition that came out of that was pretty extensively different. And then there was a bit later the original was was published. But it it people who will talk about the 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 greatness of that book and the fact that it only took three weeks for him to produce. It's it's really leaving out a lot of the rest of the story. The critical part, too, and we've talked about this on earlier episodes, so much of writing is not typing. It is the act of living. It is the act of processing and synthesizing the world around you, of having experiences, of falling in love, of having your heart broken, of being scared, of experiencing joy. And he couldn't recreate, he couldn't write on the road, turned over for editorial stuff, and then write another book in three weeks that would be anywhere near the same because, like you said, he was processing years of his life and his experiences just to be able to write that. That's such an extraordinary outlier in the in the process of... Uh, what we're talking about when we talk about the prospect of writing a novel in three weeks from scratch, from idea to completion, or even from like loose idea to completion. And there's a reason why people are still reading on the road 50 plus years later and talking about it and using it as a touchstone and a lot of other things that have been produced very fast are part of the disposable culture that we live in that, that they're not they're not meant to and don't leave a mark on anybody or anything i think that's a great point is the, the, the disposability of it and you know there are like i said that there there will be some group of authors who are just concerned with quantity and volume and speed and there may be some some revenue that comes of that but you know, what are you, at least for for you and for me and for writers who I think are serious about their craft and serious about what they want to leave behind. I mean, the thing about books is that they stay around forever. You can build a skyscraper. You can write a book. You can build a skyscraper. The book is going to outlive the skyscraper. Every book, the books that you, a book that you write, will be around after every building that exists now has crumbled to the ground. So, you know, what are you leaving? What are you, what, what, what is, what is that going to do? What are you, what are you, what kind of effect are you looking to have on, on people with something that is going to, that has the ability to leave such a lasting mark? I think a lot of, what's poisoned this conversation and people's perceptions of how things get done is this whole nature, this over, over emphasis on hustle and grind and like wake up and five times your writing ability and max out this. And I see it everywhere. And it's, it's, it's so tiresome to see second and third right second and third rate 
philosophy life coaches who are trying to create an illusion of like, if you just spend 25 hours a day doing this thing with these three tips, it's a life hack to give you millions of dollars. I'm going to go ahead and be real here. Most of these people are colossally deceptive about the state of their own life. The transferability of the hustle and grind mindset that somehow this is your way to happiness, fulfillment, um, that it's a competition, that all of these cutthroat, pretend, alpha male, pseudo, it, it's all just such a crock of terrible advice, both from an artistic and writing standpoint, but also from a way to live your life. We're not meant to grind and hustle our way through life. That's not, that's not what this is about. Yeah. Just from a mental health standpoint, it's, it's, you know, the, the Uber capitalist way of, of looking at things where everything is a, is a race to accumulate resources. I saw, uh, I, I, I don't, can't attribute it properly, but I saw a tweet in my scrolling yesterday that said, Something about uh, when when you realize that all of the so-called productivity gurus are are single, childless <laughs> dudes. It's like, yeah, I'm sure you're very productive because you have because there aren't relationships there to tend to. There aren't other people to 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 be with. There aren't relationships to foster. Um, and those are things that you don't look at as you know it isn't just get up and start spending time with your kids at 4 a.m you know it's like the, you you there there <laughs> it doesn't work that way there are things that you're going to miss going back that you're gonna miss if you if you don't hit the brakes and smell the flowers going back to your metaphor of houses too so you've built 52 houses in 52 weeks like, you're going to love this. Or do you spend years building one house and it's the thing that gets passed down and the family, all of those things that you're just talking about. You have to be mindful about these things. You have to think about what is the long-term viability. And you said it better than I can, but just this cutthroat race to accumulate resources and, and when i say resources here i probably actually mean the fascination and obsession and compulsion that people feel to stack money and cars and houses no matter how many times you see somebody who is still miserable miserable and unhappy even though they're living in what we assume through the highly filtered personality that they present on Instagram or LinkedIn or YouTube or wherever this idea of like I'm paid yeah and you're miserable so maybe I guess money wasn't the actual medication for dealing with life and if that's the case 
what are some of the more tried and true things for feeling a sense of purpose and feeling like a fulfilled person to, in you know, the words of, in the, in Maslow's hierarchy, like what is an actualized version of you look like and how did it get there and how much of that can be bought? Probably not very much doing the hard work. I guess, I guess I'm just going to go for it. Jay, I'm just going to make the metaphor here. Doing the hard work of writing a novel, which means living and feeling and experiencing and working on your craft and synthesizing and breaking things down and figuring out what it is that you have to say and that you want to say. And saying it is akin to spending a lot of time building a house and putting together all of the skills and the the things that you need to do to build something that is foundationally uh, adequate, the plumbing and electricity works the way as intended, and it provides the space for others to live in it in a fulfilled way. That's a totally different thing than slapping together a bunch of housing that's going to crash in five years because, well, it looks pretty on the outside, but it's empty on the inside. Man, that's a metaphor right there. It <laughs> looks good on the outside, but it's empty on the inside. So I, I talk to a lot of beginning writers, a lot of aspiring writers who say, I, you know, I really want to have this out by next summer or my birthday or this or when. And I say, well, why, why? That's, you know, the only thing that that's going to do is, is prevent you from being able to take the time for the deliberation that you need to do it right. If you, if you have an artificial timeline for yourself, you might write a first draft and then come up with a brilliant idea and then need to completely redo it. You might need to add a character. You might need to take three characters out. I'm in the, my manuscript right now. I'm eight, nine drafts into it. I don't even know. But this last, in the current draft I'm working on now, I'm taking out two viewpoint characters. I'm completely changing the voice of another character. And I just, I, I realized at a certain point that the book would be better if I did those things. And so if I'd had a timeline, if I said, Oh no, I need to get this done by 2022 by summer, 2022. I just would have said, no, I'm not going to do those things. Just, let's just throw it out there. But, but not having a timeline lets you evaluate the quality. It lets you, it lets you make decisions that might be time consuming. And yes, it can be frustrating when you've done all that work. But but again, it's it's not, none of it is wasted. I'm taking these viewpoint characters out, but I did a lot of work to try to capture their voices and understand who they are. And just as an exercise, that's a, that's a valuable exercise. Even if I never reuse, even I don't recycle them, it's still an exercise where I learned a lot about them, about their worldviews, about who they are and how they fit into this whole universe. And, and they are still a part of the story, just not as viewpoint characters. But it, it, if, if you prioritize quality over speed, then you're going to give yourself the freedom to do things right, to, to make 
hard decisions to kill your darlings and and ultimately get to something that is going to be better that's going to have more of an impact it's going to move people more that's going to introduce the reading world to characters that are going to live longer i would like to invite people to be mindful when they catch themselves talking in the way that you just said about, I need to have this book out for my birthday. I need to have this book out before I turn 40. I need to have this book out before I turn 50. I would invite people to be mindful that when they have those ideas, when they have those thoughts to question them, to stop and ask yourself, what is your expectation that if you get this done by this time and you get this out by this time, what is your expectation? What do you think is going to happen then that you're going to be fulfilled and happy moving forward? Because I can tell you that that's not going to do it alone. That is just not going to do it. In fact, it may create some regret later on when you see like, oh, if I would have just taken my time, I could have made this so much better. Because you will find many authors who will say that when they look back at their earlier work, especially things that maybe they thought were great at the time, that if they were given the opportunity to rework them now, the book would come out different. And it's because of the experiences that they've had. So I would encourage people to question that when they have an internal urge, sense of urgency to have something done by a certain time to just question it. And I would also say that in all matters, even when you're not actively thinking about your book, when you see posts on social media that are really pushing hustle and grind culture, productivity culture, this idea of like, we can do more if we just work harder and we get up before everybody else, question that every time it comes up. It doesn't matter that it's loud. It doesn't matter that that's what the chorus, wherever you are, seems to be singing. There's no natural law to any of that that makes it the right thing or the way that you need to live your life and the tenets that you need to engage in with how you go about your day. And if you need, if you feel ostracized, if you feel like an outsider, because that's not your nature, you don't want to hustle and grind your way through life, but you think that everybody else is, come back to this podcast. Send me an email. I'll remind you that that is not, it's, it's, a, it's a recent phenomenon as a marketing tip for people who are not qualified to give you life advice for them to sell you a book. That's all this is, uh, tutorials and books. It's just a way someone else is figuring out. It is a multi-level marketing scheme of, of purpose being misstated as personal growth and productivity. Absolutely. And that's what all, you know, on some level, all advertising and marketing is is the the underlying message is that you're not complete unless you are doing this or unless you're doing that unless you have this unless you own that unless you're trying to get this and writing pursuing the arts is you know and, and particularly writing and i say that but there are some some 
art forms are expensive and difficult to do. You can't just go out and make an amazing movie in your free time. You need lots of equipment. You need people. You need permits. You need lots of stuff. But if you're going to write something, you need a notebook and a pen and probably a laptop at some point. But, but your needs are are very, very low from a, 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 you know, it's capitalism can't really doesn't, there's not a lot to do there. And so there are people who are trying to, to get money from writers. Oh, you need this. You need that. You got to figure out this. You got to learn the secret to this and the secret to that. And these five tips and these 12 tips and this, that, and the other. And really what matters is you just being engaged with your story. And if we're going to talk about routines, you know, the other side of this is that it is hard to complete a book and it does take a lot of time and you do have to have some commitment and you do have to have a regular routine that, that works, but it needs to be organic. It needs to be something where it, it is a, really a product of your day, what your life is like, what the balancing act is for you, what your brain is like, what your story needs. I have in this revision that I'm doing, I've, there are some parts of it that have gone really quickly. And then there is this character whose voice I am kind of redoing. I'm giving her a very different role in the book than she had before. And so every time I get to one of her sections, I have to really slow down. Because I haven't, you know, in this draft, she's taking on a very, a a new sort of identity, a new, it's a new role that she has. And so the the other parts that I'm revising are often quite, quite fast. And then I get to her and then I just have to hit the brakes. And it might be, I might take two or three days of where I'm not writing and I'm just thinking about her and thinking about the past sections that I've wrote about her and trying to figure out just trying to hear her voice and trying to understand how that she would react to these situations. And those aren't things that you can do if you're just, if you think of writing as only sitting at your computer with a timer running because it's your 90 minutes a day or your two hours a day or whatever it is that you think the routine needs to be. And you're sitting there trying to force it to come. It's not necessarily going to come if you just kind of back up off of it and let it come forward as it does, maybe you get the idea in the shower. Maybe you get the idea when you're out on a hike. Maybe you get the idea when you're hanging out with somebody and there's a, just something random event that happens on the edge of your lunch date that gives you an idea. And it's, it's just letting the story be open and alive. And then, and, and just, cultivating habits where your mind is touching on it often. If you're stuck in traffic, you know, maybe don't pick up your phone and scroll. Maybe just think about your character. And that's going to, by the time you do go sit down the next time, you're going to be in such a better position to understand what's going on, to to move forward. If you can just give yourself that mental space elsewhere you know we talk about your your scheduled writing time or whether you see I, I mean i don't have a real routine i have a couple of kids they're with me some days they're not other days there's you know the, I, I i write when the inspiration strikes i try to at least sit down daily and do a little bit just so that the story keeps a certain level of life in my mind but 
I mean, for me, I think of I, I think of myself as writing all the time and typing. It's a much smaller percentage of the time when I'm actually typing. That seems like a good part of a routine is to make sure that you're allowing yourself time to work on the book by thinking, by not having any typing distraction, but just being able to think, to be able to hang out with your characters. I was just meeting with a client last week and we talked about what it's like. Just if you dropped in and had coffee with your characters, where are they in life? What are they thinking about? There's obviously the plot that's going on and there's obviously whatever's actually in the book, but there's a lot that's not in the book that would also be informing their view of the world, how they're interacting with the world, how they were before this thing happened, how their life is changing. All of these things are exercises that require, I maintain, that require you to disassociate from yourself and try to see the world through somebody else's perspective so that you can fully and accurately capture that in whatever you choose to write about their life. And you can't do that effectively without dedicating time and energy and real purpose in discovery and empathy with your characters. And if you are writing, if you are typing while you are doing that, I would maintain that you can't fully give yourself over to that. It'd be kind of like if you are typing out a work report and your kids kept coming up to you and asking you questions. You're typing, sure, but you're also trying to be a parent and are you being the best of either one in that moment when you're, when you're doing that? Probably not. So giving yourself the space to see writing as not just typing and to do like Jason was saying, exist in the world and to give yourself credit in that moment that you are writing, that you're not measuring whether or not you're writing by how many words you typed during any given day. Like that's not, that's not the statistic. In fact, to bring this all back, your typing output is kind of like book scan. It represents a, a portion of the process of writing a book, but it does not paint a complete and full picture. It's not taking into account you doing an event at a library or back of the room book sales at a speaking engagement you did. It's just not. It's just saying, here is a measurable thing that we have. How does it compare to others? And that's when you get people doing the like, yeah, I don't sit down. You know, I sit down every day and I type out 5,000 words. Cool, I guess, for you. That's great. That's not, it's not a way for anyone to compare themselves with how good of a writer they are or how good their book is, is based on what everyone's daily word count is. Yeah. And then to, to, if you, you know, the, the, the typing to writing ratio and the book scan to actual, 
<laughs> promotion selling ratio is similar to the the three weeks spent typing on the road versus the the few years of actually doing the writing and the living and and you know that's that's a critical part i i find personally that dialogue in particular comes to me when i'm not at when i'm not at the computer i'll often when i'm writing description then that does it feels like i'm really actually doing that as i'm sitting there typing and creating that but when my characters when i get to a scene when i get to my characters really interacting and talking to one another that most often comes to me when i'm not at the computer I just, I'll hear their voices. I'm driving, I'll be hiking or doing the dishes or whatever. And I just, that's when I hear my characters talking to one another. And that's when their, their voices become clear. they they assert their personalities. I've discovered whole characters in, in later stages of, of drafting who have, kind of shoved their way in and they, they, they don't do that when I'm sitting at the computer, they do that when I'm doing other things and allowing my mind to be open to possibilities. Absolutely. And that's such a joy when that happens and you can't force that. Like that's that character forcing the issue, but it's not you as the author forcing that issue. And that's again, a contrast from the hustle and grind mindset where you operate under the illusion that this is all in your control, that the pacing, that the discovery is all in your control and that you are in control of all of the variables in the environment and that you can just muscle your way through all of this and do it on your terms. And what Jason was just talking about and another thing that I've experienced is where the characters that are your main characters, that are your existent main characters, there are times when they'll turn around and they'll say, you're, you're writing me in a direction that I wouldn't go. And then you have to have a conversation between you and your character, which on the face of it seems kind of odd because you are in control. If you subscribe to the hustle and grind mindset, you're in control. You can tell them what to do. You're the boss. You're the alpha. You can just force this. But the fact is, it's not how the process works for everybody. And I would, I would, I would boldly and without scientific evidence say it's not how the process works for writing a good book. I'm sure someone can say, yeah, well, so-and-so sold 15 million copies of their book. So what do you know? Maybe I know nothing. I'm very Socratic that way. Like I'm willing to accept that I don't, I don't know everything, but I, but I push back on some things that feel wrong. Okay. And in an attempt to faithfully fulfill our podcast obligations in titling, how would we say here are writing routines that work don't give yourself a timeline unless you're unless you've got a multi-book deal and your publisher says i need that those those situations accepted 
don't give yourself a timeline because a timeline will prevent like all these things that we've talked about, these conversations with your characters, the appearances of new characters. Those things don't happen if you're working on a timeline. You are closing yourself off to all sorts of possibilities if you give yourself an artificial and arbitrary timeline. Because if, if you do that, then you are beholden to whatever the first set of ideas was that you had. You had that first set of ideas and you wrote an outline and you can't waver from that because it's going to slow you down. Don't, don't do that. Just give yourself, give yourself time and give yourself space. Let your, give yourself time to just think about your characters. Think about, think about your story. If you are somebody who hikes a lot as I am, and maybe you always listen to podcasts just don't like maybe give yourself like, go for a couple of hikes where you aren't listening to something where you aren't taking in media where you aren't listening to music or music is less problematic i think than 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 news than social media than podcasts than 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 talking um but give yourself give your brain space to to roam and to maybe go out and and collect some some things that you might not otherwise find i would say to piggyback on that recognize that writing is more than typing as part of your routine give yourself credit for a life lived give yourself permission to experience things so that you can write about them later, that this is part of the writing process, that you can type about them later. I would also say that give yourself credit that when you are thinking about your characters, when you are thinking about your book, when you're having the meaningful dialogue with fictional people that Jason was just talking about, recognize that as a part of your process, as part of your routine. Give yourself credit. It, it becomes very easy for people to look at the posted word counts of others on a daily basis, 2,000 words, 2,500 words, 5,000 words, and to feel inadequate using that metric. And so you think to yourself, I'm not really a writer, or I'm failing as a writer. As part of your routine and self-care, I would say acknowledge the emotional work that you are doing and the philosophical planning that you are doing by engaging with the book in a non-typing capacity and, and be good with that. I do try to touch base with whatever manuscript I have, whatever manuscript I'm working on daily even if it's just very brief, even if it's just a sentence or two, um, a paragraph, very often I will a couple of, I think that does a couple of things. Sometimes I'm just, I'm not feeling inspired. I'm not feeling tired. And so I just say, all right, I just, I'm just going to take a look at this. I'm just going to remind myself of where I am and exactly what's happening. And and, you know, what the next sentence is that I need to grapple with or what the next scene is. 
And then very often I will, uh, it's, it's a very low pressure situation and I'll go into that. And then very often I'll look up and it's an hour and a half later. And, but sometimes it's not, sometimes I just touch base with it. And then I spend a few minutes with it. And even if I don't get inspired to do a bunch of work, just then just doing that, that touchstone will help to keep it alive in my mind after I walk away. If I go do other things, if I'm going to, if I've got a bunch of housework to do and I check in on my manuscript right beforehand, then during that housework, my mind is going to be working on the writing, on where I am, on thinking through it rather than what it, what my mind might've been doing, doing elsewhere. Recognizing that it's okay to do the housework and think about writing is an important thing. I know that I have, especially of late, I'll do things like I'll be typing for an hour, two hours, 15 minutes, I don't know. But I'll recognize that the part of my process that is best served by typing isn't occurring. I'm not going to be in a place where I can move the story forward on the page, but I'm still engaged with things. I'm trying to figure out what it is I want to type. And there are all these weird orbits and I'm watching them. What I do is I will transition to bed. And if I'm still awake, but I know that my, my productivity rise and grind if I'm just if I'm just trying to go to sleep so I can get up and rise and grind again, I will get into bed and start recording a voice memo. And I will talk through what it is that is challenging me. I will talk through what my different thoughts are. And the number of breakthroughs that I've had using that process is evidence to me that that works. And there's... There's great joy in going back the next day and listening in real time as you have a breakthrough when you're like, oh, I just figured it out. And then you're able to like all of these things click that you wouldn't have had if you were trying to move the book forward strictly in a word count way sitting at the computer. Yeah, sometimes you just need to change the the window through which you're looking at your story. You just got to get up and walk around to the other side of the elephant and see what's happening over there. Yeah. And I guess lastly, for me, when I'm thinking about routine, accountability on some level, even if it's just having a friend that you talk to and, and you just both check in and say, yeah, I'm, I'm engaging with my material. I'm engaging in the book. That might be a way to help clear some of the anxiety around wanting an audience that you're writing at full speed because you're looking for an audience. If you already have a trusted person that you can talk to and say, yep, I'm checking in. The caveat there is you can definitely talk the shine and polish off your book if you do it too much instead of actually writing. And there are a lot of people who I've met, I'm like, yep, still working on the same book. That's cool. And then, um, you can tell that their enthusiasm for a project is waning because they've been talking about it so much. 
writing is a very solitary and internal process for a bunch of people. And that's okay. I, I know that I go on at length about it, but I think I've gotten to a point now where even if the book I'm working on never gets published, I'm okay with that for what it's done to me artistically and spiritually and psychically. It is. And it's intensely personal. And the act of doing it is also intensely personal. So the routine that's going to work for one person is not going to work for somebody else. I think that the, the, the main message that we have here today is to give yourself the time and the space to do it in the way that works for you. That is your routine. All right. Well, I don't have anything more for the people. Do you, Mr. Buckholtz? I do not. All right. Well, then I would like to remind people that if you enjoy CollaboraCast, to feel free to rate and review, give thumbs up, subscribe, do all those things wherever you get your podcast. Tell your friends about it. Say, hey, these people are definitely not rising grinders and they definitely are still doing okay. Maybe give them a listen. We'll, we'll set them straight or whatever. Uh, that's it from here. We need to coin a term that is the opposite of rise and grind. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to spend time thinking about that. You're right. We need to, we need to have, and we need dear, dear collaborators who are listening. Uh, if you have ideas, go ahead and email them to info at collaborators.org. But I think that whatever the rise and grind opposite, the antonym phrase for rise and grind that we come up with, we definitely need to, counter market and, and go to go into LinkedIn and all of the social medias and make it a thing so that people can take refuge in the anti-rise and grind world. Right. We're designing t-shirts. We need that. We need that motto. Yeah. Four story. For community. Collaborate. Collaborate.